And here we go, everybody. Another edition of Jamal About Sports coming to you on a Saturday, March 4th, 2023. Kicking off the show, an 80s classic, Take On Me by AHA. As always, I'm your host, Jamal Hayden. We've got a big show to get to. We have lots of NBA action, including the Knicks. Uh, We'll talk a little bit about Major League Baseball as spring training is... uh, in full effect and uh, a lot of these rules changes now we're starting to see some of the the impact that those will have Um, got some thoughts about that Uh, we'll talk a little college hoops as well as uh, the regular season is winding down conference tournaments right around the corner and then of course uh, March Madness right after that but we start with the New York Knickerbockers uh, on as uh, in today's parlance as people like to say on a heater uh, they've won eight games in a row, including uh, a huge win last night over the Heat um, down in Miami, uh, a team that uh, about a week ago I think the Knicks were essentially tied with for the sixth spot. Um, and that's the big thing now, right? The NBA made this rules change a couple of years ago to uh, de-incentivize, if you will, teams from tanking. So, you know, at this time, typically teams that were not going to be in the playoffs would essentially, quote unquote, tank, which, again, organizations tank, players don't, right? Players are out there trying their hardest. Organizations will play players that are probably not ready for prime time uh, in the hopes that they will maybe figure out a couple of things, right? Are these who's going to be part of our core going forward? And then, but lose enough games so that they can get into the lottery and improve their team that way. Except, as I pointed out on the show many times, the NBA draft is the most flawed draft of all. It's a complete joke. The one and done in college has completely ruined the NBA draft. Teams idiotically, through stupid groupthink, devalue players like Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart, and we'll get to them in a second, and, you know, overvalue guys that have huge upsides. But as we've seen time and time again in the last, say, 10 years, um, top five lottery picks in the NBA, a lot of these guys are not only not with their original team, they're on like their third team. D'Angelo Russell comes to mind immediately, but there are several other examples of that. Um, And so, uh, you know, the the NBA draft is a completely flawed uh, process and, and is a horrendous model for pipeline of infusion as far as talent goes uh, to to the NBA. I mean, it, it, it's terrible. Um, but I digress. So now the way the NBA set it up is they're the top six teams are assured to play in what was the normal playoff format. The one will play the six, the two will play the five, the three will play the four. And then you have these play-in tournaments for, uh, what is it? I guess, is it 12 through 8, right? Which are essentially one game in, you know, win or go home type of situations. Uh, I think it's a little goofy myself. Um, It does keep teams in it longer. It's sort of like the third wild card that they added in baseball, where now at the trading deadline, you're seeing less teams inclined to deal away players because they think that they may have a chance to get in. Um, So uh, in any event, the big deal now, as far as the playoffs are concerned, is you want to be 
the sixth seed, right? And the Knicks were sort of hanging by a thread, uh, were the seventh seed for a while. And look, we know the NBA season is extremely long, but we're, we're you know, we're, we're in the last, uh, we're basically, you know, coming down the home stretch here. I mean, the Knicks have uh, 18 games left to go. Um, but since this winning streak, now they've put some serious distance between themselves and the Heat, and that's why last night's game was, was a huge game. It's basically a two-game swing. And so now the Knicks are, and we'll get to last night's game in a second, but big picture here we'll start with. The Knicks are now the five seed. They've sur- since surpassed the Nets, who before last night's win over Boston had uh, been playing poorly after trading away Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving, just as I said they were or would. Uh, I'm being sarcastic there. I completely got that wrong. I I said, I believe on the last show, that the Nets would be totally fine. You know, maybe not quite as good, of course, but I like the players that they got back. And by the way, Mikael Bridges has played, other than the game against the Knicks, uh, he's played very well. Um, And some of the other guys, Cam Johnson and what have you. But uh, that was in the Durant trade. Um, You know, the guys they got back for, for... Kyrie, you know, Dorian Finney-Smith, you know, nice role player, you know, nothing special. Dinwiddie, I like Spencer Dinwiddie, the point guard, but, you know, he's got some flaws to his game. But in any event, so the Knicks have surpassed the Nets. Uh, They're now a game ahead of them in the loss column, um, two overall. For the fifth seed, Knicks just a game back of the Cavaliers in the loss column. Now for the fourth seed, uh, probably too much ground to make up on the Sixers, who are in the third spot at 40 and 22. The Knicks now, by the way, a season high 11 games over 500 at 38 and 27, which means with 18 games to go, even if they if they just go nine and nine, that's a 47 win season. The Knicks were predicted by the quote unquote experts that the over under on their win total was 38 and a half. So they basically match that already. And if they go 9-9 down the rest of the, the stretch, that's 47 wins. That's a really pretty good season. I mean, 50 wins in the NBA is like a, is a, is a, you know, a, a litmus test that a lot of teams use, right? You'd like to win 50 games. It's, I don't know if it's the equivalent of winning 100 games in a baseball season. It's probably equivalent to winning about 90, which is, you know, a good, a good year. I mean, 50-32 and 32 is a good record. Um and so that's 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 within reach now. I mean, the Knicks are going to have to go twelve and seven in the last nineteen, or sorry, is it nineteen? Eighteen. So I can't do math. Um, they would have to go twelve and six uh, to get to fifty wins, right? No, that doesn't make sense. Thirty-eight and twenty-seven. So they played fifty-five games, so they don't have nineteen games left. I'm an idiot. They have eighteen games. No, they have seventeen games left now, right? Thirty-eight and twenty-seven is 55 and 17 is 50 (laughs) 67 sorry 50 65 games they've got 17 games to go so if they go nine and eight in those they would go uh they'd be 47 wins so they've got a yeah they need 12 more wins to get to 50 anyway the point i'm trying to make here as i go off on this long tangent is that they're now in the fifth seed uh, a game up on the Nets, and now four games up on the Heat in the loss column. Um, you know who are who are on their heels. So huge win last night. What was a great What was great about the win last night is a couple things. Knicks got off to a big lead, had led by 17 at one point in the first half. We're up 15 at halftime. Now we have seen the NBA game has completely changed from you know when 
people of my generation were growing up and watching the league in the 80s and the 90s. A 15-point lead in the fourth quarter with five minutes to go is not uh, a done deal. It used to be 10 minutes, a 10-point lead with three minutes to go was basically a done deal. It's not anymore. The advent of the three, and it's not just the advent of the three. The three's been around now for a while. It's that almost everybody on the floor can shoot the three to you know varying degrees of success. But, I mean, you know, put, put it this way. Patrick Ewing... Probably, uh, he probably has less than 100 three-pointers made for his career. And he was a good jump-shooting center. Today's version of Patrick Ewing would probably shoot five to six threes a game, maybe more, and, you know, would probably be a 35, 36% shooter from three-point range, which on its surface doesn't look great, but if you just do the simple math, right, because three is worth more than two, you know, 35, 36% shooter from three-point range is not bad. Um, you know, probably preferable than a guy who shoots 40% from two. So almost everybody on the floor can make a three-pointer now. Uh, you saw it last night. I mean, Julius Randle, who's a burly power forward, sort of in the old-school mode, but is pretty athletic at times. Um, I mean, he made the shot of the game, which was lucky. He came off a broken play. He was about to turn the ball over on back-to-back possessions. Very Julius Randle-esque. By the way, he had a great game. Then had a huge costly turnover late in the game that led to the Heat getting a, a layup down the stretch down the uh, down the other end to put the Heat up by one. And then Randall made this miraculous three after he over dribbled, got the ball knocked away from him, was able miraculously to recover it, and then sort of dribbling to his right and he's a lefty shot. You know, kind of you know step back three from like the elbow. Uh, and made it with one point, what turned out to be, it said 0.7 seconds, but turned out to be 1.1 seconds. And the Heat still had a timeout, so they were able to call timeout inbound the ball from half court. I thought for sure the Knicks were going to not only, you know, probably give up a two, but I wouldn't have been surprised if they gave up a wide open three. Not only did they not do that, they, they, Kevin Love threw, you know, sort of a iffy inbounds pass, and, and Mitchell Robinson went up and, and intercepted it. So it was... There was no drama at all there, and uh, Heat didn't even get a shot off, and Knicks got out of there with a 122-120 to 120 win. It's a great game. It's a game that earlier in the season the Knicks would have lost. In years past, the Knicks definitely would have lost. Uh, even a season ago, look, the Knicks, were th- the Knicks won 38 games last year. They lost, I'd say, 10 games easily last year that were like this, where they led... They had a lead late. They led big early. The other team came back. They came back, but they could not find a way to close it out. And so you're not going to win all of those games, but let's say you win half of those games. That's 38 to 43. That's a 43-win season. That gets you in the playoffs generally. It's going to get you in the play-in for sure. Could get you into the sixth seed depending on the season, on the year. Um, what's been the big difference? It's been... Um, Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson has been the big difference. Those games where you're down late or close late or down a possession late, down one, down two, down three, you need a guy that can either A, get his own shot and a quality shot or make difficult shots or B, set up other guys for good shots. And the Knicks have not had that guy, which basically we're talking about a point guard. But it doesn't always have to be a point guard, right? It can just be a player that can, you know, do those things. Um, 
Knicks haven't had that player in forever, and they have it in Jalen Brunson. And anybody's ever listened to the show, and I said it on the last show, I've been a Jalen Brunson guy from the jump. Now, did I know he was going to be this good? No. Be fair, I did not. Um, although my my thesis that I'd rather have Jalen Brunson in the pros than Trey Young is not looking crazy now, folks. I understand Trey Young is a much flashier player, uh, and all you know, and he has all his histrionics on the court and all the other nonsense that comes with him, which is why I never liked him. Um, but uh, I said this years ago. Jalen Brunson just has winning DNA. He is a guy who knows how to play. He understands angles. He understands pace. He is, you know, not the tallest, not the most athletic, not the quickest. But boy, does he get the job done. He is just a winning player. That's it. Um, and again, he was great again last night. Gave the Knicks a scare and their Knicks fans a scare. Rolled his ankle on a play in the third quarter. Went right to the locker room and I thought, okay, well, that was fun because the Knicks blew out the Nets the other night. They scored 142 points. And I'm like, all right, they, 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 we're just going to get set up for major disappointment here at some point. And so when Brunson went down last night, I thought, okay, here we go. That's that. There it is. He's going to be out now for the rest of the year. But in typical Brunson fashion, because he's also tough as nails among, on top of everything else. Um, I mean, the guy, he's a consummate leader, consummate professional. Um, he uh, came back. Taped up the ankle, made you know a couple of huge plays late, including uh, a big you know driving scoop lefty layup high off the glass when the Knicks really needed it. Um, and I think what do you have 20, 25 points, eight assists last night. His 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 numbers for the year are tremendous. I mean, look, the Knicks keep playing this well, which they're not going to play this. I mean, look, they're on an eight-game heater. They had another eight-game winning streak earlier in the year, and then they proceeded to immediately lose five games in a row. Now, this is a different team, I think. The addition of Josh Hart has been enormous. They've got Mitchell Robinson back as their rim protector uh, and a guy who gets some extra possessions because he's an excellent offensive rebounder and keeps balls alive on the glass. Um, And Josh Hart has fit in perfectly as a, you know, uh, energizer off the bench, a kind of do it all type of two guard wing guy. Not again, not nothing great, but gives you hustle plays. And again, he's a winning player. Oh, and what what what's the parallels between Jalen Brunson and Josh Hart? Both went to Villanova, played on the same team, won national championships. Uh, one played three years, one played four. Oh, but we don't like those guys. So Jalen Brunson was a second round pick. Trey Young. Not only was Trey Young a top five pick. The, the Hawks moronically traded out of traded up to get him and got rid of Luka Doncic in the process. Um, and and again, I think you could argue, and, and the reason I, I bring them up is because they were the same draft. Jalen Brunson was a second-round pick of that draft, and Josh Hart was the 30th pick of the first round when he came out. Um, I mean, the NBA does this. They, they get this wrong all the time. Teams get this, get this wrong all the time. I understand the NFL this happens too. Sometimes in baseball, whatever. Baseball is much more of a crapshoot because, you know, you're drafting high school kids a lot. Now, you're seeing teams in baseball more and more start to draft college players uh, because they want a little bit more of a known entity because they, you know, particularly the small market teams, and this started way back with with Moneyball and Billy Bean and the A's, um, they want guys that are more major league ready sooner, right? You draft an 18-year-old, you have no idea what you're getting. You draft a kid in college, 
Certain traits translate immediately, like having a good eye and good on-base percentage, translate quicker to the major league game than a guy who's 18 and a stud high school player. Um, But as it relates to uh, Josh Hart, I mean, look, he gives you good defense. He's an excellent rebound. He averages eight rebounds a game as a guard. Um, Hustle plays galore. Can rebound and then push the ball up the floor and get either himself a layup or get layups for his teammates or wide open threes for his teammates. He's a really, really good, smart, heady, useful player with a team-first attitude. And that's the thing you have to say about this Knicks team is everybody has a team-first attitude. I mean, look, one of the things I love about Tibbs is he doesn't care who you are, what your contract is, if you're an all-star, if you're this, you're that, you're a lottery pick, you're not. Whoever he thinks is the best lineup to close out a game, that's who he goes with. And last night's a perfect example. I mean, quickly was on the floor again over R.J. Barrett. And R.J. Barrett actually, for him, had a decent game. You know, he was uh, he had 17 points. He was 8 for 16, I think, from the floor, which isn't bad, except he was 0 for 4 from 3. I mean, look, Barrett, I, I've talked about a million times. He's a very confounding player. He, he's he, There are times when you think he's the answer, but more often than not, unfortunately to me, he looks like he is not the answer. And, I mean, you can't have a two-guard who can't shoot. I mean, I'm sorry. And he, like, he, all right, that's an overstatement. But he's just far too streaky. Um, there's way too many times when, you know, he's, you know, way too many 6-for-19s, 7-for-22s. Now, to be fair, I will give him this. There are a lot of times when he'll be 2-for-10, and then he'll make three pretty big shots in the fourth quarter. Not game winners, but shots that get you back into the game. Um, and look, he's got the right attitude. I want him to work out. I have nothing against R.J. Barrett. He's frustrating and confounding to watch as a fan. But big picture, I mean, you know, all he does is is play. He plays hard. He doesn't complain. He doesn't say a peep. Um, and you got to give Thibodeau, Thibodeau credit for this. I mean, the whole team is bought into this philosophy. Um, it is very much a group of unselfish, team-first uh, guys, and it's working out really well right now. I mean, look, again, Brunson's playing at an MVP level. If the Knicks win 50 games, Brunson better be in the top five of MVP votes. I mean, I know he's not Giannis. I know he's not uh, Donkic. I know he's not Jason Tatum. He's not Jokic. I get it. But, I mean, again, nobody thought the Knicks were going to do anything this year. They finish as the fifth or the fourth seed. He, he's going to get some MVP votes, and rightfully so. He's played great. And again, it's the statistics are there. I think he's averaging like 23 points and seven assists a game. But you know what? Let's take a look, actually, at his statistics because they're off the charts. And again, they're not just empty calories, right? These numbers translate to wins. This is not Carmelo Anthony putting up his window dressing stats that 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 often did not mean uh, uh, amount to a hill of beans from a wins perspective. All right, so he Brunson is averaging. First of all, he's durable. He's played sixty one out of sixty five games. He's averaging twenty four points, twenty three point nine. We'll round up. He's averaging twenty four points. Three and a half, three point six rebounds, six point two assists. He's got a 3-to-1 assist-to-turnover ratio. He is 
averaging, he's shooting 48.7. Let's round up again. 49% from the field, shooting 41% from three, which is outstanding, and 83% from the foul line. I mean, the, 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 the gold standard for players now in the NBA for scorers is 50, 40, and 80. 50% from two, 40% from three, 80% from the foul line. He's just a tick below the field goal percentage at 49. He's over the three at 41, and he's over the foul shooting at 83. And that foul shooting is down a little bit. He was at 85. He's, he's had a couple of games, weirdly, where he's, he's, he's missed you know three or four foul shots, which is not like him at all. He's been tremendous. More than you could expect. And by the way, the, there were a lot of people that thought the Knicks overpaid for him. I think they gave him a four or five-year contract for a hundred and something million bucks. He now looks underpaid. I mean, when you see some of the junk out there in the NBA, you know, or guys that are role players at best making $15, $18 million a year. I mean, look, Evan Fournier on the Knicks, by the way, making 17 and a half, 18 million bucks. He doesn't even play anymore. He's completely out of rotation. And again, give Thibodeau credit for this. The Knicks were 10 and 13, first 23 games. Right? They've since gone 28 and 14. After that, Thibodeau benched his his one of his favorites, Derrick Rose. He benched Fournier. He inserted Grimes into the starting lineup, Quentin Grimes, two guard. He started playing Miles McBride off the bench. Oh, he also benched Cam Reddish, who got traded for Josh Hart. Who, by the way, to be fair, has put up numbers. I don't know if he's played well. I've seen in the box where he's been looks like he's been playing well for Portland. Cam Reddish. Um And since then, the Knicks have gone 28 and 14. And now that they got Josh Hart, look, Quentin Grimes' minutes have been uh, reduced significantly. Miles McBride doesn't play anymore unless it's garbage time, blowouts. Um, and you haven't heard a peep out of either of them. Not, not nothing. Because, look, you give Leon Rose and Thibodeau credit for this. They know what kind of guy they want. Miles McBride played for Bob Huggins at West Virginia. You can't play. And, and started a point guard. You cannot play for Bob Huggins at, 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 and be, uh, you know, delicate, shall we say. Okay? You have to be tough, both physically and mentally. Miles McBride is that. Quentin Grimes is physically tough and tough mentally as well. And not only has Brunson been great as far as his statistics, his contributions to winning, it has also helped Julius Randle immensely. Julius Randle doesn't have to do it all himself anymore. And dare I say, Julius Randle is having a tremendous season. He is averaging 25 points, 10 rebounds, and four assists. Now, are there times when he gets a little over his skis still? Yep. Does he speed himself up late in games? Yep. Still does. But look, he's been great lately. I mean, he's his last 20 games, he has played as well as almost any team in the league. And by the way, the Knicks beat the Celtics the other night, and uh, Jason Tatum, Mr. MVP candidate, was getting his lunch handed to him, and instead of toughing it out, got himself thrown out of the game by getting two technical fouls by yapping. And Julius Randle completely outplayed him in that game. So I know everybody's in love with Jason Tatum. And listen, he's a great player. He's averaging 30 points and eight rebounds a game. I get it. But... Randall's averaging 25 and 10. 
And look, Celtics have an overall better better team. Knicks play Celtics tomorrow, by the way. It'd be interesting to see if they could win that game. Celtics are going to be angry. They blew a big lead to the Nets last night. Um, but Randall said this three weeks ago, and I said this on the last show, and I agree with him. Knicks can beat anybody. They can also lose to anybody. But lately, they're not doing that. They are beating the teams they're supposed to beat, and then they've had some really good wins, like the win over the Celtics earlier in the week. Uh, again, went on the road against Miami last week. I mean, look, Knicks have been, you know, had been confoundingly and sort of frustratingly a better road team than home team. Um, and their road on the re- their record on the road is still better. They are, I think, nineteen and twelve on the road and nineteen and fifteen at home, if I'm not mistaken. But the nineteen and fifteen at home, they were under five hundred at home. With, and had an overall winning record, which is almost unheard of. You almost never see that. Um, but now they're starting to get their act together at home, too. So, look, still a, a fairly long way to go here with the 18 games left. Or now, now 17, right? 38 and 27 to 65. So, yes, Jamal, 17 games, you dope. Um, they are 19 and 15 at home, 19 and 12 on a road. Seven and eight only in the division, but in the conference, 27 and 16. Excellent record. It's a better record than the Nets. They have more wins in the Cavaliers, four, but three more losses. So the Cavs still have a lot of conference games left to play. Um, much better record in the Heat in conference if we're going to get if it comes down to tiebreak, because the Heat are under 500 right now in the conference at 16 and 21. Um, same thing goes for the Hawks. They're 19 and 20 in the conference. Same thing goes for the Raptors, who have beaten the Knicks a bunch this year. They're 19 and 21. Uh, but right now, look, the Knicks should have their eye on the prize to get to the fourth seed. I mean, they're they're a game behind Cleveland, who everybody loves, by the way, the darlings of the NBA, the Cavaliers. So look, they're they're really good. Great backcourt with De- uh, Donovan Mitchell and Darius Garland. Uh, Mobley's a very good player. Josh Allen, the former net, the fro is a very good player. Um, they, you know, they're they're the the the, the Karis Levert, also former net, coming off the bench. I mean, Cavs are a talented team. Um, but can the Knicks catch them? Sure, they're a game behind. In fact, let's take a look at the Knicks' schedule. And I know you you get it gets dangerous when you do this and you start looking at games you think. You know, should be what should be a win, what should be a loss. But it's supposed to be fun, so let's have a little fun. Let's have a little fun. All right. The Knicks now, they're at Boston Sunday, tomorrow night. You got to say that's a loss. It's going gonna, it's, it's gonna to be tough road to hoe. They're home against Charlotte. Knicks need to win that game. At Sacramento, and then then they have a tough one, two, three, four, four game West Coast swing. At Sacramento, who's finally good again, it's going to be a tough game. At the Clippers, you know people love the Clippers. They're a 500 team, and yes, I know they have big stars with Paul George and Kawhi Leonard, and now they picked up Russell Westbrook. Um, that's a winnable game. At the Lakers, definitely a winnable game now. No LeBron. Uh, at Portland, winnable game, but oh, I feel like Portland's been a house of horrors for the Knicks, uh, particularly in recent years. And they still have Dame Lillard, who's playing great. You know, he had 71 points, I think, last week in a game. Not, not I think, I know he did. I think it was last week. Maybe, maybe it was the week before. Um, 
So that's a tough four-game stretch there out west. You'll take two and two right now. Let's say they split the Boston. So that's two and two. That's three and three. Home against Denver. Going to be tough. Denver's, you know, one of the better teams in the West. Home against Minnesota should be a win. At the Heat, tough game. At Orlando. Orlando seems to give the Knicks a hard time too, but that's a game they have to win. They're home against Houston. They've got to beat them. They're Houston's one of the worst teams in the league. Home against Miami should be a win. At Cleveland, could be a very big game with one, two, three, four, five games remaining. At Cleveland, that could be a big game. That could be for, you know, either the fourth or the fifth seed, depending. Home against Washington should be a win. At the Pacers, winnable. At New Orleans, winnable. Home against the I mean, look, in the 17, 17 games left, you know, I, I'll sign up for 10 and 7 right now. Give me 10 and 7 right now. I'll be happy. 48 win season, probably all but guarantees in the fifth seed. Take that in a heartbeat. Take it in a heartbeat. All right, we'll take a short break, and we'll be back right after this. All right, we're back here on a Saturday edition of Jamal About Sports. Moving on to, uh, let's do college basketball. Why not? Um, Since we did NBA, now we'll do college. Specifically, my Maryland Terrapins. New first-year coach in Kevin Willard, formerly of Seton Hall, done a nice, who did a nice job there. Uh, son of Ralph Willard, former coach of Western Kentucky, and I want to say Providence. Uh, I think he replaced Pete Gillen when Pete Gillen left Providence to go to UVA. Let's, let's take a look. I, I think that's what happened. But anyway, you know, a coaching lifer, right? Grew up around the game. Um, still a relatively young guy. I think he's in his 40s, even though he's got chrome dome. Um, sort of looks like a mini Scott Van Pelt, one of the more famous Maryland alums. Um, but, uh, you know, listen, Maryland was picked, was picked again, similar to the Knicks. Nobody expected much out of them this year. They were picked to be towards the bottom of the, 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 the Big Ten. Uh, you know, last year was a rough season, but a season that had to happen, right? I'd, I'd long been advocating for Mark Turgeon to, to not be the coach at Maryland anymore. Uh, he, was, he was given ample opportunity and time, 10-plus years, at a you know school that was once in the ACC, which was the cradle of basketball in college, um, a charter member of that league, uh, in a, a, a basketball-rich recruiting area called the DMV, which is D.C., Maryland, and Virginia, a school that won a national championship in 2002, a school that has a pedigree, has a history of great players, of putting players in the NBA, of a great coach in Gary Williams, um, of having top-notch facility, place to play at the Xfinity Center. I mean, everything was there. There's no excuses to not be good at Maryland. Zero. None. None. Particularly in basketball. Because again, basketball, unlike all the other sports, only five guys. So you only need two really good players to be good. For the most part, or at least be competitive. And listen, yes, did Maryland have some success under Mark Turgeon? They did. Was it the kind of success that every Maryland fan would want? No, frankly, it was not. And he was a, he often appeared joyless tense. I felt that that always sort of translated and trickled down to the way his players played. Um, Nobody ever seemed to be having a lot of fun out there. 
everything seemed like a slog. I forget what year it was now. It's probably like four years now already where they made the Sweet 16 and you could see it was just relief for them. There was no joy there. And that was the team that had, I think that was Suleiman and Melo Trimble and a, a bunch of good players on it. And there were high expectations. You could tell it started with the coach. He did not like the high expectations. It trickled down to the team. So it was time for him to go. So he stepped down last year. He was probably going to get fired anyway. And, you know, with upheaval, that, that uh, when you have a coaching change, that creates upheaval, a lot of uncertainty. Danny Manning took over the interim coach. Team wasn't very good. They had a losing season for the first time in forever. And so not a lot was expected out of this team. Well, they're 20 and 10. They've guaranteed themselves a winning record in the Big Ten. Now, they had a bad loss to a terrible Ohio State team the other night. It was senior night. It was on the road. Maryland's been a bad road team. They only have one, one road win in conference. They've won every game at home. They won all their home games this year. They have one more game tomorrow at Penn State. Same thing. Senior night. I hate those games. That's Teams get up for those. They It's like their Super Bowl. Penn State's also playing for something. They could make the tournament as well. And Penn State hates Maryland. Uh, and so, you know, it's going to be a tough game for them to win. But regardless of what happens, Maryland, worst case, going to go 11-9 and in a conference. They're going to go 20, you know, and then they'll be a top four or five seed in, in the Big Ten tournament. They're making the NCAAs. I think the worst they'll be is an eight or a nine seed. If they beat Penn State tomorrow and make a little hay in the Big Ten tournament, I think they could go as high as a five, probably somewhere as a six. Um, but they've done a good job. They've done a great job, and Willard's done a great job. And look, this is barely even his team, right? It's his first year. He hasn't had a full recruiting cycle yet. Now, the landscape of college sports in general has changed dramatically with the transfer portal. So you look at who's on this team. Their best players, you hear Young, is a transfer from University of Charlotte. He's a local kid, grew up in Maryland, wanted to go to Maryland, didn't get a sniff by Turgeon and his uh, crew. And now he's there, and he's been their best player all year. You know, he's a point guard who's really a scoring guard. Kind of a poor man's Damon Stoudemire. And the reason I say that, he's not that tall, shoots lefty, um, but is also a really good rebounder for a short guard. He's barely 6'1". You know, he's tough, makes clutch shots. He's been great. Um, Hakeem Hart, who I think should have been better, but has had a really nice year this year. He's a 6'8 guard, basically. Um... Has had a nice year. Dante Scott has also been there for a while. He's another one who sort of leaves you wanting more. He can play really well at times and other times sort of disappears. Um, and uh, uh, Donald Carey, is, again, is a transfer from Georgetown. It's supposedly a great three-point shooter. He's had a miserable year shooting the three up until recently. He's gotten hot recently. When they beat Northwestern at home, and Northwestern was ranked last Sunday, uh, he he shot it very well in that game, um, and even in the loss to Ohio State, where the, the most of the team played poorly and didn't shoot it well, he shot it well. That would be nice. That would be a nice bump for them um, if he can actually find his uh, find the range that that you know he he I think he was a forty percent three point shooter in his college career um, at Georgetown before coming to Maryland this year, and, and literally couldn't you know could barely hit the broadside of a barn. He's gotten much better. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the transfer portal has changed everything when it comes to college uh, sports and, and, and basketball. So it, it, the, it, so it's not totally surprising, 
that Maryland's had a good year, but give Kevin Willard a lot of credit, of course. And, I mean, he brought these guys in. He got them to buy in to his style of play, which is you better play defense or else you're not going to play. They play hard. They hustle. They're a very exciting and fun team to watch. Now, they've had games where they look like one of the least talented teams in the country because they can't make shots. They go through these long, cold stretches where you're like, how are these guys Division One college players? Um, you know, it happened in that first Michigan game that was ugly. The game against UCLA was ugly. The first half against Tennessee was horrendous. I mean, they've had some of these stinkers. Now, less of them lately sort of reared its ugly head again against in the game against Ohio State on Wednesday. Uh, but I'd say over the last 15 games, it's gotten much better. Uh, so hopefully they refine that form against Penn State tomorrow. Beat Penn State. That would make them 12-8 and eight in the conference. Uh, 21 wins overall. Um, and again, last year, let's take a look at the Big Ten standings because uh, there's a lot. Teams are bunched up big time um, in the in the Big Ten. So let's see. Let's go to men's college basketball. I probably should have already had this queued up, but I didn't. And now, of course, I can't. I mean, this. Oh, there it is. NCAA men. Okay, good. Right above the XFL because that's 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 what I'm interested in. Uh, okay, NCA men. No. Hmm. Okay. Great. This is really fantastic. Um, no, huh? No. No. Can't can't find it. Can't get to it somehow. Okay. This is great. Okay, here it is. My bad. All right. Standings, come on. We don't want all conferences. We want the Big Ten. By the way, you believe it's been 10 years? I think this Maryland's 10th year now in the Big Ten. All right, so right now, Purdue's going to win the conference. They're 14-5 regular season. You've got Iowa at 11-8, Maryland at 11-8, Indiana at 11-8, Illinois at 11-8, Michigan 11-8, Northwestern and eleven and eight, and Michigan State's ten and eight. So if they win their last two, they could get to twelve and eight. I mean, look at that. That is crazy. Now Maryland has beaten Indiana, so they own the tiebreak against them. They beat Illinois, they own the tiebreak against them. They split with Michigan, but I think they have a better record overall within against like opponents in Michigan. So I think they own the tiebreaker there. They beat Northwestern, so they own the tiebreaker there. Um, they lost to Michigan State, so they would lose the tiebreaker there. So Maryland is in pretty good shape here in terms of tiebreakers. Um, if they they got to get to twelve and eight, uh, and then they could be you know they could be as high as the two seed in the Big Ten tournament, which is great because then you get the double buy. Uh, so again, it's been a fun season overall. Um, you know, very happy with uh, with with with. Kevin Willard, and I know they've supposedly got a good recruiting class coming in. We'll see, again, what happens with the transfers. But, um, you know, the overall college basketball season has been an interesting one. There's like seven different teams that have been ranked uh, ranked number one at some point or another. It may even be more. Right now, Houston is the first-ranked team. You know, last time – yeah, I mean, Houston, by the way, has sneak, you know, sort of sneakily been under the radar. I mean, they were in the Final Four three years ago. They were in the Elite Eight or Sweet 16 – 
I think they've been in the Final Four in Sweet 16 two out of the last three years. Kelvin Sampson, who used to coach at Oklahoma, ran afoul of NCAA rules there. Uh, is a very good coach, though. Um, and, um, you know, they're, they're, they're a really legit, really good team. But a lot of the Blue Bloods are like sort of, you know, they've been knocked off a pedestal a little bit. Kentucky, North Carolina, Duke. They're, they're you know, they're all kind of like Carolina's a bubble team right now. Duke is probably going to get in, but they've not had a great year in the first year without Shashevsky, and Kentucky for them is not have not been great either. Um, so yeah, the, college basketball is wide open. I mean, it's wide open. The best conference in college basketball this year has been a big Big Twelve, which is Kansas, Kansas State, TCU, Oklahoma, Oklahoma State teams like that. Um, in fact, let's take a quick look at the Big Twelve, shall we? They don't get a lot of love, I'm sure, nationally. Uh, I mean, Kansas is obviously a blue blood. They're always really good. But, yeah, Kansas, you've got how many ranked teams in the Big 12? Kansas is ranked third. Kansas State's ranked 11th. Baylor is ranked seventh. Texas is ranked ninth. TCU's 22nd. So you've got one, two, three, five teams in the top 25 from that conference. Um, now, the middling part of that conference is not great. You got Iowa State 17 and 12, but they're 8 and 9 in the conference. And everybody else is under 500 and hovering around over or under 500 uh, overall record. So I don't, pro- it didn't look like, unless one of these teams makes a run in that conference tournament, it doesn't look like, other than those five teams, anybody else is coming out of the Big 12. Um, it's very top heavy. But I mean, to have five teams ranked in the top 25 is obviously really good. Whereas the Big 10 is likely going to get. The Big Ten, which is, I think, 14 teams now, is going to get probably 10 teams into the conference, into the tournament. You got 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. Yeah, it's 14 teams in the Big Ten. Um, but Purdue's in. Iowa's likely in. Maryland's in. Indiana's going to be in. Illinois is likely in. Michigan probably. Well, Michigan's 17 and 13, but they have a good conference record. Northwestern's likely in. They're 20 and 10. Michigan State's probably going to get in. Rutgers could very well get in. And Penn State's fighting for their lives. I mean, they're, they're 9 and 10. This game tomorrow, is, I'm very scared of this game. I mean, they're, they're going to treat it like they're, they're, like they're NCAA finals, like they're Super Bowl. They'll get them to 10 and 10 in conference. They'll get them 19 wins. Um, it's a good, it'll be a good resume builder for them for their tight, uh, tournament hopes. So, uh, I'd really like Maryland to win, and plus I hate Penn State. So I'd really like to beat them tomorrow. Uh, but, yeah, I mean, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. I mean, I, a lot of these bracketology guys have 10 teams making it from the Big Ten. So, anyway. Um, all right. Let's uh, shift gears and talk about Major League Baseball really quickly. So a bunch of big rules changes coming in this year because – as we've been saying for years, Major League Baseball has succumbed to stupid groupthink through the under the auspices and the guise that analytics, better living through analytics, basically. Um, and it's made the sport a boring, long slog, right? The three true outcomes, home run, strikeout, walk. Um, you've had, you know, guys have become lazy, and I, I think lazy, and the lazy excuse that nobody can hit to the opposite field anymore. So teams have been employing um, dr- dramatic shifts to take, you know, what used to be a, a base hit up the middle is now an out. 
a ball hit between first and second is now an out, oftentimes um, with teams essentially daring batters, particularly lefties, to go the other way. And, you know, the lazy excuse that I hear is, well, pitching is so much better now and you can't expect these guys to do that. It's a bunch of horse shit. Jeff McNeil does it. There's other guys in the league that do it. I mean, the Mets have a lot of guys that do it. Brendan Nimmo does it. Um, if you're going to give me the whole field, I will take it. And I will take my single. And I will uh, eschew this idiotic notion that somehow a single is no good anymore. Except down base percentage is great, but we don't like singles because it's too hard to string together singles. We can only play for three-run homers. Even though for 150 years... That was just fine. Even though the hit and run was uh, a, a, a competitive advantage if you could execute it properly, that went the way of the dinosaur in baseball because all these geniuses with their analytics told everybody that it's no good anymore and the stolen base is no good anymore. So everybody got lazy and accepted this junk. And now baseball has to save the sport from itself because of all this idiotic, ridiculous groupthink. And so now we have these stupid rules now that we're implementing. Again, another lazy reaction, overreaction. Because this is what we do, by the way, as a society. Is we see one problem and we overcorrect everything. So now, in baseball, we have giant bases that look stupid. They look like pizza boxes, as some player, I forget which player referred to it as. Which what, what that's supposed to accomplish, I have no idea. I guess make make the, 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 the distance between the bases now somewhat shorter so that somehow improves action in some way. I, I, I mean, I didn't know that this was a problem. It wasn't. Again, this is an invented problem with a needless solution. The big one is the pitch clock. And this one, I'm a little more... I, I, I'm taking a wait-and-see approach on this. So the idea of the pitch clock is the pitcher has to pitch the ball, and I think it's 20 seconds or less, and maybe it goes up a little bit if there are runners on base. It does go up. I don't know exactly what the timing is. But also the batter needs to be ready to hit in the batter's box in a certain amount of time or else he will get a strike called on him. And conversely, if the pitcher doesn't deliver the pitch in the requisite amount of time, they will get either a ball or a balk. I think it's a ball if there's nobody on base and it's a balk if there is somebody on base. And that's to speed up the flow of the game. That I don't necessarily hate. And the players actually, except for Manny Machado uh, so far, seem to have accepted. The pitchers seem to have accepted. Now, some are going to get a little bit more getting used to than others. Carlos Carrasco struggled with it in his first spring training start. Max Scherzer says he really likes it. So, you know, we'll see how that plays out. I don't hate the idea. Look, the, the, the games were getting too long. They were getting too boring. Now, a long game can be good if it's exciting, right? You know, you could have an extra inning game that's 1-1 that lasts for four and a half hours that goes to the 13th or 14th inning, although Major League Baseball has now put an end to that with this stupid ghost runner horse shit. Um, you know, putting the runner on second base in the extra innings, it, it's just so antithetical to actual competition. It's, it's enraging to me. But anyway... I digress. That rule's already been in place now for a few years. Um, so the idea is to speed up the game. I mean, look, these spring training games, they're, they're getting played in two and a half hours, two hours and 40 minutes, even high-scoring games. So that I don't necessarily hate. We'll see how that goes. So taking a wait-and-see approach to that. Um, shifts have now been banned, and 
in, and, 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 and again, overcorrection. Infielders can't even have their feet on the outfield grass now anymore. To me, this is complete nonsense and garbage. Can't stand it. I hate it. I absolutely hate it. I mean, it's, it, it, it's the nanny state of sports. I mean, what? Oh, oh, I'm sorry because you can't adapt your game to what were perfectly legal means of strategy. So now we have to shift it back and, and, and ban all shifts. It's ridiculous. I mean, maybe there should there could have been a happy medium in there somewhere, but again, that's you know we we don't do that anymore because that would require some actual thought and some work. But we always go for the quick fix now in everything, in all facets of life, sports included. So, um, so I guess now you know we're going back. And and again, the idea behind this supposedly is you want more runners on base, you want more traffic. Same thing with now, you can't, you can't throw to first only a few uh, a number of times, so this supposedly will encourage stolen bases. Um, again, stolen bases were a thing forever until fairly recently when people who never played the sport told people who have been playing the sport or been around the sport their whole lives that it was a bad idea, and for some reason people believed them. So, you know, listen, I know I'm old man, get off my long guy, and I don't like change. That's not true. I don't like change for change's sake. If you can show me demonstrable results that the changes are an improvement, I will change my position. I will change my stance. That's what supposedly smart people should do. It's how we should do everything in life, not just sports. So I am skeptical right now that these changes are going to make it, are going to improve the product. Again, I, I it was the product becoming damaged, yes, but I think again that's more a, a, a function of people eschewing tried and true methods and strategies that were, you know, that were around for hundreds of years or over a hundred years for this supposed new and better way of thinking. When it's not always new and better, is not always new is not always better. If something has worked for a long time, if you want to tweak it, that's one thing. To completely change it and throw the baby out with the bathwater, so to speak, that's idiotic. And it's lazy. So we'll see. We'll see. Overall, I'm excited for the Mets season. You know, Jacob deGrom went to Texas because he had an opt-out in his contract. He was only, quote-unquote, making $30 million a year. And I understand by today's standards he was underpaid because Scherzer is making 40, and now Verlander is making 40, who the Mets signed to replace deGrom. Um, you know, they had the brief dalliance with Carlos Correa. They were going to sign him to play third base and give him a huge contract. I'm actually glad the Mets didn't do that. One of their best prospects is a third baseman, Brett Beatty. You know, and they've got a, a decent placeholder there now in Eduardo Escobar. They won 101 games last year. I mean, the, the, the Mets' big problem last year is they got cold at the worst time. They got cold in the, in the Braves series late in the year, in late September, 
And then they got they went ice cold in, in, in both pitching and hitting against the San Diego. Scherzer had a horrible start that Friday night game against the Padres in the playoffs. He was terrible. And Bassett, you know, picked the worst time for his two worst games of the year after he'd been rock solid all year. He's gone now. He got replaced by Ken Daisengo, the Japanese star. Be interested to see how he translates. But, you know, all indications are he should be very good. Um, but I'm glad. I, I, look, I, I, I think it's a good mix of veterans and some stars. And then some, you know, the Mets have some young, exciting talent supposedly coming on. Ronnie Mauricio. Toolsy, you know, shortstop who's going to probably outgrow the position. He's like 6'3", 220 pounds already. He was the Dominican League MVP. He had a great year at AA last year, like 26 homers and 90 RBIs. And he's, I think he's hit four home runs already in spring training. Now, again, you take spring training with a grain of salt. But this guy's supposed to be good, and so far he's showing that he's talented and good. Francisco Alvarez, the catcher, only 21 years old. I think his bat will probably play right now. He's got to work on his defense. Mets don't need him to play right away. If he mashes the ball in spring training, and if he has a great time at AAA, and one of the Mets catchers, which is Navarez or Nito, either get hurt, which catchers get hurt a lot, or underperform, also could happen, and he's killing it at AAA, Alvarez, bring him up. Or if the Mets need a righty DH because Tommy Pham's not getting the job done, or Darren Ruff's not getting the job done, bring him up, fine. But you don't have to force him. Same with Beatty. Let's say Escobar gets hurt again, like he did last year, and Beatty got a brief call-up and was playing well until he got hurt. Or Escobar underperforms to the point where you can't carry his bat in the lineup anymore. Maybe you call up Mauricio. Maybe you call up Beatty because Mauricio's probably going to get moved to third base. But you've got Alvarez. You've got Mauricio. You've got Beatty. You've got Mark Vientos, who got a cup of coffee with the Mets last year and at time showed his bat is major league ready. So some young, exciting talent just on the horizon to fill in for some guys that will likely be, you know, aging out. So I'm excited. I love Buck. We know that we love Buck. Steve Cohen, the owner, has, of course, shown uh, that money is not an object, and he wants to build a winning team. All right, that's going to do it for today's show. As always, thanks for listening. You can catch us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, peace out.